Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. of fantasy across comics, novels, TV, and cinema. He is, though, above all, a storyteller. Whether he's turning death and dreams into flesh-and-blood characters, as with his 1989 genre-busting comic book, The Sandman, which has just been adapted by Netflix, or making ancient myth and the modern world collide with his fiction bestsellers like American Gods and beloved children's literature like Coraline. It makes sense that Neil Gaiman works with the Moth team. Described as a storytelling movement, the Moth helps people to uncover and craft their own unique tales, drawing on real-life experiences before delivering them to packed-out audiences at live events around the world and indeed online. In a popular radio show and podcast that's downloaded more than 90 million times a year. Wow, that's a lot of stories. They're now releasing a new book, How to Tell a Story. Neil once said, myths and stories are how we've made sense of the world for as long as we've been wandering the planet. So I asked him when we spoke earlier, uh, at a time when the world sometimes feels stranger than fiction, what does the role of the storyteller become? I think storytelling right now is very much a two-edged sword because I think that um, a storyteller's job is to build empathy and to inspire, and also to counter evil stories, stories of hate, stories of um, stories that justify oppressing others, stories that cause pain, and simple stories that unite countries but mess everybody up. So, uh, and stories can do that too. So stories, they're incredibly powerful, and I'm absolutely on the side of empathy, vulnerability, and all giving each other a helping hand sort of stories. 
Let's talk a little bit then about how the moth might play into that. I suppose, to some extent, it is like the opposite of social media because it's not constrained by word count, though it is uh, by time, but it is people telling real stories about their lives uh, without, with actually carried, buoyed by the warmth of an audience rather than its ability to pick them apart. Uh, that's exactly what it is. It, the, the moth started out as friends sitting, exchanging stories of their lives on a porch. And the moth symbolized the moths that were fluttering around the lights and the candles as they sat and told stories. I got drawn into the moth's flame in 2007. I was in New York for a uh, pen a world pen event and uh, was asked to go and just take part in a moth event and i'd never heard of the moth and worked with one of their one of the people at the moth one of the moth's directors i told them the story that i thought seemed appropriate for their theme and they just helped me hone it find out what was important to me about it and then I got up in front of an audience and told them what it was like to be 15 years old on Liverpool Street Station with my parents having forgotten about me and having gone off on holiday. I'd been on a, a German exchange, so I'd been gone for two weeks and my parents had not been keeping track of things. They'd gone off on an Easter break holiday and I had no money no resources, did not know what to do, and was on Liverpool Street Station. And I got to tell the story to an audience and suddenly realized that actual live storytelling mattered, that the, you could feel the audience coming together. And I've been now to probably a couple of dozen moth events and they're always magical and you hear stories you hear things about people's lives you would never otherwise hear and you realize that everybody else has a story that all of the people that you pass in the street this this old lady may have been somebody whose job it was to test spies in world war ii to test british spies as their last their final test before they went to France or to Germany, um, and just to find out if they could keep a secret. And uh, her, she would give them a night of dancing and fun and perhaps even a little bit of passion. And if, uh, if they breathed the word of their mission, they would learn the next morning that they were not actually cut out to be spies. You're not going to deflect and, me, though, Neil, because that story that you just told is really quite incredible. You're 15 years old. You're forgotten at Liverpool Street Station. You, you've talked a lot in interviews in the past about, you know, as a child, losing yourself in stories and, and often finding stories that were a safe place to go when you were full of fear. But actually, I'm starting to feel that your fear was quite justified <laughs> if you find yourself in situations like that uh, often. I suspect that if you talked to anybody, they would come up with a some glorious, um, if not that story, then stories of ways that uh, their parents 
failed them in some way or did not quite step up to things. I was telling somebody the other night about the night that my parents forgot to pick me up from school. Um, and finally, at sort of 10.30 at night, phone calls were being exchanged and eventually I managed to get home. <laughs> Neil, I hate to I hate to ask you this because I don't want to play to your insecurities, but were you particularly forgettable as a child or something? Because stations, school. <laughs> I actually, I guess, but you know, it's quite possible that I was. I was a kid in a corner with a book, and I think it was fairly possible to overlook me. And I, I was very happy being overlooked. I was very happy, sort of sliding under a table with a book and just disappearing and being left alone and heading off into bookland. At the, at that time, did you enjoy being that child who disappeared into bookland? Or is it with the benefit of hindsight that you enjoy the portrait of that child in bookland? I No, I loved being that kid in bookland. Uh, that was, uh, when I look back as an adult on moments of extreme pleasure as a kid the best it ever got would be school holidays getting dropped off by my parents at nine o'clock in the morning when the library opened and just heading into the back of our local town library disappearing into the children's area running wild with their card catalog because they had a subject catalog so I could look up witches or ghosts or giants or outer space or whatever I felt like that day and reading until the library closed at 6 or 6 30 and then walking home and having dinner as far as I was concerned that was as good as it got what did your siblings think of you my I talked once to my sister Lizzie who's younger than I was and she said I was incredibly embarrassing <laughs> um I was she said that she once was walking in town on a Saturday, and she saw me walking along the pavement, reading a book, bump into a lamppost, without looking up, apologize to the lamppost and keep walking. And she said I would have been about 15 or 16 at that point. And uh, she just hoped desperately that none of her friends spotted me or knew that we were related. <laughs> when did you realize <laughs> uh, that rather than just be set aside as the, the the freakish one that actually your immersion in in storyland uh was something that you could actually adopt yourself as a as a skill um i think it was always a skill it was something that i mean i was you know getting the school english prize all that kind of thing i was i loved stories i loved writing from as far back as i can remember did that, not, also, did that not impress people, though? Because there you're a prize winner, at least, even if you are bumping into lampposts. I, I don't know. I was just Neil. I was, uh, you know, that was who I was. Uh, it, it's one of those things where, from my point of view, uh, my superpower was also my kryptonite. On the one hand, I had this amazing imagination on the other hand, it meant that I could terrify myself. I could populate the dark with all sorts of terrifying things and then have to phone my parents to walk me home down a dark lane uh, because I couldn't do it on my own because I terrified myself so much. This moth book, How to Tell a Story, is obviously there to, to teach readers about that very thing. It's all, it's all in the title. 
how did you learn to tell a story or was it just innate? And do you think that there are rules um, or guides? I think there are a lot of guides and a lot of things that you can do to help you tell stories. One thing I'm currently fascinated by is that the moth for some years now have been doing courses in high schools where they'll do moth story slams. You get up, these high school kids get up and tell stories about themselves. And um, what they're experiencing is that it's the one place in school where being vulnerable and being, for want of a better word, a loser, can actually win you votes because everybody votes on what their favorite story was. And people don't vote on the stories where you do something brilliant and you win the awards and you come through when you defeat the bully or whatever. Uh, they tend to vote for the stories that actually do show vulnerability, that do show weakness, I guess, but in the sense that we're all weak. Um, those things that create empathy and those moments that go, oh, you are a person and I didn't know that this is what you were going through and that is important. So I think there's a lot of stuff that can be taught. You teach people where to start a story. You can tell people to stop when they get to the end of their story but I do think one of the most important things of all is just to teach people to be open and honest and vulnerable when they're telling their story, because that's what they have that nobody else in the world has, is their story. Usually when adults tell stories, not all the time, but, but very often they are stories about childhood. How do they differ from the stories that children tell then? I think we tend to fix things and we also put them into context. Kids' stories... And when you hear kids doing story slams, they're much more immediate. And you also, you can feel the pain. You can touch the emotion, whether it's joy or, or despair. It's, it's not something that has been muted by time and adulthood. It's right there and immediate. Do you think storytelling is actually something that we, 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 we lose our skill for, that it's innate in childhood and in adulthood, it's something that unless... Uh, ones like you and actually sort of carries it with them it's something that has to be summoned uh, do you think that it's do you think that it's something that that dissolves as we grow older no but i think like anything it atrophies through disuse uh some of the best finest storytellers i've ever encountered were old um, but they were all people who'd kept telling stories whether in pubs or on walks there's a marvelous feeling when somebody starts telling you a story, whether a story of their own life or a story of something they've experienced, and you know you're in safe hands. You know that they are metaphorically taking your hand and walking you with them, and they know how to tell this story, and you kind of just relax into it. And then there's the awkwardness of people trying to tell stories who think they can't. The other night, I, I had my next door neighbor over for a cup of tea. I met him walking and, and said, come in, have a cup of tea. And he started telling me the entire story of his life, apologizing every step of the way for being boring. And there was nothing more interesting 
than the story of his life and of his parents and how they came to America. And it was it was an absolutely engrossing hour and a half of, of sitting there over tea from somebody who was convinced that they were, you know, absolutely boring me stiff the whole time. Just finally on, on, on this sort of part of the technicalities of story writing, I just wondered what you think the biggest mistakes uh, people make. One of the tips in the book is uh, about focusing on some of the smaller stories within a larger experience to make it more relatable. There's that whole thing about show, not tell as well, isn't there? I mean, I'm absolutely allergic when I feel someone is telling me what I should draw from a paragraph in a book rather than perhaps hinting at me by perhaps what the characters got on the walls or what you know you know that's the thing that i'm i'm allergic to i think that there is a fabulous place for telling as long as you don't tell people what they ought to be thinking or feeling about what you're telling them but i do think that the most important thing with a story is not to tell the story first and then to tell the story and then to tell people what you just told them. The most important thing is just tell it. Just start somewhere that feels about right. Pick the salient bits and stop when you get to the end. And people always leave them wanting more as well. I said at the beginning uh, of uh, our conversation that, that the moth is in some ways the sort of antithesis of social media because you have this empathizing audience you have time and space to talk about something that you feel you know and and that you've experienced but do, do you think that we're less and less interested in stories um or uh, that it's harder to get the space to tell our stories in this world now where everything is defined by the number of characters or how beautiful you can make it look i mean do, do, the idea of the intensity of someone's experience rather than the glossed over shortened edited perfected version uh, that we're becoming slightly inured to, to to that experience i think if people weren't interested something like the moth wouldn't have become globally huge that you wouldn't get the numbers of people listening to the moth radio hour and downloading the moth podcasts that you do because what the people respond to is hearing these amazing stories of other people's lives and often realizing that the stories of their lives are actually just as interesting, um, which can be quite a discovery for us. I do think that the biggest and most interesting thing about things like the moth is the vulnerability because social media is all about, you know, it's about bragging. It's about humble bragging. It's about looking good and being good and being polished and presenting a slick, well-turned front. And everything in good storytelling is about being open and being vulnerable and being present. And it's all the stuff that social media isn't. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Neil, you are now super successful in many different formats, dare I use the word. I wondered... um, how much time you find for for storytelling anymore but also you know one of the things that people who love reading often say is that when they see an adaptation of the book that they loved and it could in your case be the sandman which is possibly one of the most successful uh, comics of all time and now a massive netflix adaptation uh, good omens and nancy boy all of all of these books that you've written that have now been adapted and and, and what readers often say is oh, I loved it when it was the book because I get to imagine it and I get to, you know, it's my imagination that creates the world, exactly as you've said, the reason that books aren't actually inanimate. How do you feel about transferring them and making your vision literal like that? I'm absolutely on the side of anybody who doesn't, who loves a piece of fiction so much they don't want to experience the adaptation. Um, I got two movies into the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings cycle and realized that my the pictures and the people I built up in my head were being replaced by Peter Jackson's characters and people and places. And so I stopped. I never saw the last movie because I like the fact that I've still got my... The, the the characters and the places and the people I built up since I was eight or nine years old in my head. And so I have absolute and utter sympathy for that. And the flip side of that for me is that um, I also know the pain of a terrible, a tone deaf adaptation, the ones where you just feel like they got the whole thing wrong or they missed the point. And, um, and so for me, there's a sort of a, a point of honor in trying to get it right. And that never means making it absolutely 100% literal, because you cannot transliterate something. 
from one medium to another medium. They, it just doesn't work. They, they fail. Uh, you have to translate. And the action of translation involves adding things, involves taking things away, involves dealing with the possible. Uh, people have been coming up to me as long as my stuff is being adapted. I, I remember the first time I heard it was during the making of the film Stardust. And people come up to me and say, is it like you imagined it? And I would have to say, well, no, because when I imagine two people sitting under a tree in a field having a picnic lunch, you will never find that meadow. You'll never find that tree. The lighting will never be the same. Um, the thing that I imagined cannot become reality. But hopefully we can get something that does the same thing as the thing in my head and makes people feel the same kind of emotions and takes them to a similar place. I'm very aware that the Crowley and Aziraphale in the book Good Omens are not the Crowley and Aziraphale of Michael Sheen and David Tennant, but I love the Michael Sheen and David Tennant, Crowley and Aziraphale, as much as I love the ones that Terry Pratchett and I made in the book of Good Omens. And I think that's okay. You just have to do it with love. You're a huge champion of free speech. I think it's fair to say you think everyone should be able to say whatever they think. Uh, and yet, uh, you've also been accused of wokeism and often the whole, I mean, I just can't bear that word. I just wish we could replace the word. Maybe you can think of a better word. You're the writer. But, 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 but there is a sense that there's a tension between the two and it must, it must make you think it's quite ironic, really, uh, that, that pieces that you wrote 20, 30 years ago are, are now being accused of, of being manipulative, manipulative and woke in the present uh, climate. I think it's bizarre, um, especially when it's the same stuff. Um, I, I mean, when people are accusing me of being quote unquote woke for Sandman stuff that I wrote 35 years ago, I it's like, well, yes. I remember when instead of calling it woke, they called it politically correct. And then you talk about political correctness gone mad. And I remember once reading a book where they started talking about political correctness and the fact that you could no longer make jokes about people's ethnicity or religion in the same way. And I thought, well, actually, that's, that's just, that's not political correctness. That's just treating other people with respect. So I started changing things. So I just think, okay, that is treating other people with respect gone mad. And uh, I would love to just sort of substitute, have a little thing on my computer that substitutes the word woke whenever it turns up, but just treating other people with respect. Do you mind, just finally, do you mind attracting ire? Uh, you are quite um, frank um, and you seem to take quite a lot on the chin. I know during lockdown when you set off to Sky, you know, there was a cold explosion of social media anger at, at the fact that you'd travelled and, you know, and, 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 yet, and yet I know that that is also a place that you go to retreat to. Um, I wondered how, how much you mind being the focal point for endless opinionating. That one was rough. Uh, that, that one was particularly rough in its own way, mostly because I don't think there was, we were in such strict lockdown and there was literally nothing else happening. 
And at the point on day three where I turned on the news and heard the police have visited Neil Gaiman about his trip from New Zealand to, and I'm like, well, yes, yes, they have. They, they visited me and they said that I hadn't broken any laws or any rules and I followed things exactly the way. But it, it was this weird story that just embiggened and upset people. And uh, I was incredibly sorry that I, I upset so many people on that one. Um, but then there are the ones where people start shouting at you because you've changed somebody's skin color and made it darker and uh or they shout at you because you're jewish or they shout at you because they think you're the enemy the last few weeks they've been shouting at me because a bunch of people online got it into their heads that i was the showrunner or the writer or something on amazon prime's rings of power a <laughs> show that i had absolutely nothing to do with and that's actually been kind of fun they come and they shout at me for making hobbits browner than they think that they ought to be and i have been simply apologizing to them and assuring them that i will take all of their criticisms of of uh, rings of power to heart and in fact won't do it again I've, I've told them that i will henceforth not make any more rings of power which seems to satisfy them they don't really realize that i think they're idiots and that i'm mocking them and uh which i i I am. I'm sorry to admit. And the fact that you won't make any more rings of power is probably the truest thing you've ever said. It is. I will make no more rings of power, not a single ring. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my program every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4, on Times Radio. Catch you next time. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.